Amen. Do you have your Bible with you this morning? Good. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 is where you need to go. Last week, we continued our look at this rapid fire exhortation uh, that rounds out the great sermon letter of Hebrews. Specifically, last week, we saw the command to remember those who are in prison. We talked about the importance of empathizing with those who are suffering in ways that we could only imagine and about sympathizing with those who are suffering the same things we ourselves have suffered. It's important to remember as we look at Hebrews chapter 13, specifically verse 3, that the context is brothers and sisters who are suffering because of their faith. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are bold in their witness, who stand firm in their faith and are in trouble for trusting in Jesus and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. In other words, this text is about persecution, not about those who are suffering for committing crimes. And we want to preach what the text is about and not about something else. By way of application last week, we said four things at least. Number one, that we should be thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy that we live in a special time and a special place and we enjoy incredible freedoms that brothers and sisters across the planet would die for, would love to experience a gathering like this on a Sunday morning with no fear of being arrested, with no fear of being taken away. Be thankful for these freedoms that you enjoy. Number two, be leveraging those freedoms for the sake of the kingdom rather than simply wasting them. Rather than just sitting here and enjoying this freedom, we should go out there and proclaim with boldness the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because none of us are going to get arrested if we do that this week. So let's leverage this freedom for the sake of the kingdom of God. Number three, I told you that we must be aware of the persecution that is happening all over the world right now. We have brothers and sisters in prison right now. Today, in this 24-hour period, about 10 of our brothers and sisters will die For the sake of the gospel. Today, in this 24-hour period, we need to be aware of the suffering that is going on. We need to be uh, informed about the persecution that is happening around the world. And number four, we need to be involved in encouraging and helping those who are being persecuted for their faith. We can write letters. We can support their families. We can petition governments and authorities to let them free. We can be involved in helping them endure and persevere during these difficult times. Well, this week in Hebrews chapter 13, we shift gears a little bit and we talk about an exhortation concerning marriage. And this is huge stuff that we need to hear today. There is a tendency when we talk about matters like this to have an us and them mentality. I want to encourage you to remember that this letter was written to people like you and me. Men and women who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are seeking to follow after him. This is not a letter that's written to the pagan world. It's not a letter that's written to the secular world. It's a letter that is written to the church. And so do not approach this text today as if, yeah, that's for them, but we play by a different set of rules. Recognize that this text today, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, is written to us. It is written to us in this room today, and we need to hear it desperately. We need to hear it desperately. So look at Hebrews chapter 13. We'll read verses 1 to 4, but we are only studying verse 4 today closely. This is what God's Word says. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Let me me stop there and say I had an opportunity to do that last week. 
um, this guy I met randomly on the road and uh, talked to him for a little while. And then I said, hey, I'm a preacher and I just preached this text about entertaining angels. You're not an angel, are you? And he was like, I don't think so. That's what he said. <laughs> I don't think so. So who knows? Maybe he was and he didn't know it. Verse 3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to give us ears to hear this today. Give us ears to hear what you say in your word today. And help us to apply it to our own lives. Not just to consider our neighbor, our friend, the celebrity on television. Help us to consider how we can be obedient to this word today. Father, we, we need your help here. We need, there are marriages in this church that are on the brink of disaster. We need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your help for restoration and reconciliation, for guidance and assistance. God, we want to be a church full of healthy marriages where marriage is held in honor. The marriage bed is pure. We walk according to the pattern that you've laid out in your word. We want to be those people. We're thankful for grace, of course, when we fail, but we want to follow you. Help us to do that and inform us with your word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. There are obviously three distinct parts of this verse today, and we'll kind of tackle each one of them uh, in order. First, he says, marriage is to be held in honor among all. Second, he says, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. And third, he says, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Those will be the three parts. And it's clear in the text that those are three distinct parts that are all working together as one big message. So first, marriage is to be held in honor among all. I think there are at least three biblical reasons why marriage is honorable. Number one, marriage is honorable because God established it. Marriage is to be honored because it was God's idea. He established it. He ordained it. He instituted it. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. In fact, read with me on the board what it says in Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good, which is highly significant, right? As you're reading through Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, things are happening. And every time something happens, he says what? It's good. It's good. It's good. It's really good, right? At the end, when he creates the man... He says, this is really good. But notice in chapter 2, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he, that is the Lord, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman from the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Verse 24 is the significant part here. For this reason, Moses adds, for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, this is the picture of these two that God had created. He intended them to be together, and he puts them together, right? And then he says, this is the reason why men and women get married today. This is the reason why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. is because this is God's design for humanity, that a man and a woman would come together in marriage for a lifetime for several different purposes that we'll talk about later on. So this was God's idea. Marriage is honorable because God himself established it. We also see in John chapter 2 that Jesus endorses it because at the beginning of his public ministry, he performs a miracle that really puts him out in the public eye and it happens to take place at a wedding, right? At a wedding in Cana of Galilee. You can read that story with me in John chapter 2. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. In other words, marriage is not something that's happening, and Jesus says, that's not God ordained. That's not God's plan. I'm not going to be involved in that. No. When a marriage is happening, who's there? Jesus is there, and he's celebrating along with this family. It says in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Verse 4 is my favorite. Jesus said to her, woman, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Do you talk to your mother that way? It was actually in the, in the context, in the ancient times, this was fully respectable that he would say, woman, what does this have to do with us? It wasn't Jesus being a smart aleck, right? His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six water pots there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some water out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn it knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Right? Jesus affirming in many ways marriage here by performing his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So number one, marriage is honorable because God established it, because Jesus endorses it. Number two, marriage is honorable because it is the basic building block of all society. Marriage is honorable because, it, because the family is the basic unit of every society. From the very beginning, God has chosen to work through families, right? In fact, he creates a family. Adam and Eve, he creates them out of the ground, but what's he tell them immediately to do? Be fruitful and multiply. God doesn't continue to create people from the dust of the earth. He creates people through this marriage. It's always been God working through families. When he calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, is it just about a relationship between, between God and Abraham? No, it's about a covenant between God and Abraham's family. He makes promises not just to Abraham, but to Abraham's descendants. What I want you to see is that marriage is honorable because it is the basic building block of society. The family is the basic unit of society. Not a government, not even the church. 
not a team, not a school. It is the family that is the basic unit of society. Number three, marriage is honorable because it points us to the relationship between Christ and his church. This may be the biggest point of the three. Marriage is honorable because it points us to the relationship between Christ and his church. Check out Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Paul gives very specific instructions to wives and to husbands. And then at the end, he draws a theological application of the whole thing. Look what it says. Some of you need to hear this today. Some of you wives need to hear this today. But I am more confident that some of you husbands need to hear this today. What does God expect of Christian husbands? It's right here in the text. Verse 22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's back from Genesis chapter 2. But listen to verse 32. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. In other words, he's saying this is not just about practical advice for husbands and wives. Paul says what I'm saying to you is that the husband and wife relationship is not just about those two. It's ultimately about the relationship between Christ and his church. This is all about pointing to the relationship between Christ and his church. But then he adds in verse 33, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So two things are going on here. One is God in his word, by his grace, is giving us advice and instruction about how to live together as husbands and wives. That's definitely part of what's happening in chapter 5 of Ephesians. But also, he is making a theological point that the relationship between a husband and wife is to mimic the relationship between Christ and his church, where Christ loves and protects and sacrifices and leads and provides for his church, and where his church lovingly submits to him and follows him and adores him. That is the way it's supposed to look between a husband and wife. So marriage is honorable because it points us to the relationship between Christ and his church. This text is teaching us that marriage is to be held in honor among all. And we live in a world far from this. We live in a world where marriage is far from being honored among all. I could talk to you about a hundred different evidences of marriage not being honored by our culture. We could talk about so-called same-sex marriage. And you would, I think I could, I think I could just rail on that for the day, right? Right? 
I think I could just rail on that for the day. And in a Bible-believing, conservative church like this, I would get amen and amen one after the other because I feel like we're all generally on the same page when it comes to that. But we would love to do that and neglect some of the things that we're struggling with. We would love to point our fingers outside and not look at what's going on in here because there are other ways that marriage is uh, not honored in this culture. There are other ways that marriage is not honored even in this church. So we've got so-called same-sex marriage on the one hand. We've got easy no-fault divorce on the other hand. We've got people who make lame jokes about marriage. This drives me crazy. I'm going to talk about this more in a minute. But when people talk about the old ball and chain, And when people joke about marriage and and putting marriage down, that is disobedience to this word. That is not holding marriage in honor. We also have an increasing problem of the delay of marriage or the avoidance of marriage outright as if marriage in itself is somehow bad. Now hear me clearly. There are some people in this church who are gifted for singleness. And there have always been people in the church who are gifted for singleness. But too many people, too many young people in our day are saying, I'm never going to get married. Marriage is past. Marriage is old-fashioned. We don't don't really do marriage anymore. That's a problem. That is not holding marriage in honor. So we've got several different ways, even amongst this body, where we uh, fail to hold marriage in honor among all. But hear me clearly. Even though we live in a world where marriage is far from honored, We have clearly been called to live according to the word of God and not according to the pattern of this world. We, of all people, must stand out in this fallen world by the way we honor marriage, by the way we live as married people, by the way we talk to young people who are considering getting married, by the way we raise our children to be prepared to connect their lives to someone else in marriage. There are a million ways that we can honor marriage, and we need to do better at it. And there are a million ways where we can not dishonor marriage like we so often do, and we need to flee those things. We need to repent of those things. So first, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, he says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Secondly, he says, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. This is a clear reference to the exclusive physical relationship between a husband and a wife within the confines of Christian marriage. I want to declare to you clearly today that sex within marriage is a good gift from God. I don't think in the recent history of the church, the evangelical church in particular, we have done a good job of teaching people, men and women, boys and girls even, that sex within marriage is a good gift from God. It is a gift that he has given for us to enjoy. There is physical pleasure in the design of God for the physical relationship between husband and wife. For a long time, the Catholic Church has said that's not part of the design for Christian marriage. Physical pleasure is not part of what God intended to be uh, a factor in sex within marriage. That's craziness. Those of you who are married know that's craziness, right? Those of you who have ever studied physical anatomy know that that's craziness. There are parts of us that exist only for pleasure, right? And so we need to do a good job, a better job. Some of you are like, I cannot believe he's saying this. (laughs) Have you read Song of Solomon? 
If you haven't, that's your homework today. It is a delight and a joy to enjoy the exclusive physical relationship between a husband and a wife. Like we need to recognize that that is part of God's design is for physical pleasure. Another part of God's design for that physical union is spiritual intimacy. It is not, it is not ever just a physical connection. That physical relationship is never just a physical connection. It is an emotional connection, and more than that, it is a spiritual connection. And that's why we have to be so careful with it. That's why it is such a joy within marriage, and that's why it is so dangerous outside of marriage. Because not only is there physical pleasure, there is spiritual intimacy as well, and there is also procreation, which is a big part of what God has called us to. All right, When he says Adam and Eve, when he creates them, he says, be fruitful and multiply. And that's going to look different for different families, right? But that is the best way to grow a church. Let me tell you that. The best way to grow a church is for you to have a lot of kids and to raise them in this church. What did we just see this morning? We saw the baptism of a child who was raised in this church. And Scripture is clear. It's not a promise and it's not a rule. But when we raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, like when they're old, they won't depart from it. That's the way it generally goes. And so have a bunch of kids. We'll help you with them. We've got a nursery. We've got a nursery. It's not full. What I want you to see is that God designed marriage and the physical relationship within marriage to be a joy for us. It's a good gift from God. I think, I think all I ever heard growing up in the church about sex was no, no, no. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad. You're going to get in trouble. You're going to get sick. You're going to get someone pregnant. It's going to be bad. Just bad, bad, bad. The only thing I ever heard from the church was that. That's not all, there, that's not all the Bible says about it. There's a whole book of the Bible rejoicing over the pleasures and delights of a physical relationship between a husband and his wife. Sex within marriage is a good gift from God. Next, we also have to be clear that the Bible... The Bible says sex outside of marriage, either before marriage or with someone who is not your spouse, is dangerous and it's destructive. I heard an old preacher one time say, a fire in the fireplace can warm a home. You get that same fire out of the fireplace and it will burn the house down. And that might be a good way, a good illustration to think about God's design. He designed this gift to happen in the fireplace, to make the house warm and comfortable. But when you take that fire that God designed to take place in the fireplace and you try to build it on the kitchen table or you try to put it somewhere else, it is not going to warm your house and make it comfortable. It is going to burn your house down. And I have seen it. I have seen it, not just outside the church, inside the church. I have seen it burn houses down when we do not follow God's design. And hear me clearly, that's what Satan loves to do. He loves to take some good thing that God has given to us as a gift for his glory. He loves to take that good thing that God has designed and give the design just a little spin, just a little twist, and make it destructive. He does that with all kinds of stuff, right? He does it with food. He does it with all kinds of physical pleasures. He does it with relationships. He does it in all kinds of ways. And he has done it big time with sex, especially in the United States. He has taken this good thing that God designed for husbands and wives to enjoy together, 
giving it a little twist, and admit it, burning the house down. And that's exactly the way he likes to work. So be aware of his schemes. That's the first step in fighting the schemes of the devil, is to be aware of his schemes. And if you know that's the arrow he likes to launch, the fiery dart he likes to throw at your house, put the shield up. Put the shield up and extinguish his flaming arrows, as the Word of God says. So, sex within marriage is a good gift from God. Sex outside of marriage is dangerous and destructive. So let's consider together, how could the marriage bed be undefiled? He says in the text, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. So what does it look like to defile the marriage bed? Well, certainly we could go straight to infidelity. We could go straight to adultery and extramarital affairs. That's what comes to our mind and that's proper, that's according to the text. But don't think that's the only way you can defile your marriage bed. Don't think that that's the only way your marriage bed can be defiled. There are about a thousand other ways. Pornography will defile your marriage bed. Selfishness, even within the physical act between a husband and wife, selfishness will defile your marriage bed. Some kind of abuse can defile your marriage bed. Leverage, using, using the marriage bed as leverage to manipulate, that is defiling the marriage bed. So let's not say, I haven't defiled the marriage bed because I haven't cheated on my wife. You may be defiling the marriage bed big time and never cheat on your wife. So again, we're not, we're not looking to apply this text to everybody else in the room. We're looking to apply this text to our own hearts. In what ways am I guilty of defiling the marriage bed? And by the way, you don't have to be married to defile the marriage bed. You can be a single person and defile the marriage bed. Your own future marriage bed or somebody else's marriage bed. Be careful with this. He says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. I read the most direct and pastoral words from a preacher named Ligon Duncan, who's from Jackson, Mississippi. As he was preaching this passage, man, this struck me so powerfully. And I want to share it with you because I think it might strike some of you just as powerfully. He said, there may be someone here today, talking to his church. He said, there may be someone here today planning to commit adultery right now. Please read this next phrase in this verse. Your soul is too precious to put everything at risk. I read that and I thought, man, Lig, that is direct. That is like talking right at people. But it's also so pastoral and so loving. I love it. I love it that he says, there may be someone in this room, and there may be someone in this room today who is considering committing adultery. You've got some kind of inappropriate relationship on some level and you are thinking about how you can escalate that relationship. You are thinking about how the next thing can lead to the next thing. You're like on the edge of this, ready to dive off into it. And you're here today. Praise God he has brought you here today. Pay attention to this next part of the text because it will teach you that it's not just your marriage. It's not just your family that's on the line. It's your eternal soul. It is your eternal soul that is at stake in this matter. He says, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. This is heavy, but it is true. We would do well not to try to take the teeth out of this. We would do well not to try to mitigate this and make it nicer and easier. We would also do well not to make this warning just about those who are outside the church. 
But rather, we should apply this just as we did the other warnings in Hebrews to those who are inside the church. This is a warning for Christians. This is a warning for men and women who are trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior. What's the point of warnings? We've talked about this a dozen times throughout Hebrews. What's the point of warnings? Well, number one, warnings are intended to keep people from straying. Warnings are intended to keep people from jumping off cliffs, accidentally or intentionally. Uh, We went on a hike last weekend or a weekend before with our Sunday school class, and I took a picture with Mary Beth in front of a sign that said, Danger, high cliffs ahead. That's a good thing to warn us about, especially when we got a bunch of little kids running around, right? This is a warning that will keep us from falling off the cliff. But it is also intended to bring those who have strayed back. It's intended to bring those who have fallen back. That's what God designs in these warnings. He uses two different words here. They're they're interesting words. He talks about fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Fornication is generally viewed as sex before marriage. But the word that is behind that, the Greek word that's behind that English word, is really a general word about all kinds of sexual sin. All kinds of sexual sin is wrapped up in that. I would include pornography. I would include inappropriate flirting. I would include all kinds of sexual sin in that word. And adultery is sex outside of marriage. Sex outside of marriage. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In that same sermon, Ligon Duncan said this, and I thought this was really good too. He nailed it, by the way. If you want to listen to that sometime, it is so good. He says this, the next one. God is not saying that adultery and fornication is the unpardonable sin. That is very good news because there are very many of us who could not be pardoned if that were the unpardonable sin. Aren't you thankful that that's not the unpardonable sin? Hallelujah. Because the reality is we are all guilty of adultery. Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart for her, you have already committed adultery. How many of you are adulterers? Aren't you thankful that that's not the unpardonable sin? Look what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is so good. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's the word, same word in Hebrews, fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, that's the same word, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's devastating, isn't it? We're we're in that list somewhere. We're guilty of all of that at some point in our lives. But look at verse 11. This is the greatest news ever. It says, such were some of you, but... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That's what he does. That's what he does. He takes fornicators and adulterers and idolaters and swindlers and revilers and homosexuals and effeminate and he changes them by his grace. I love everything about that because it gives every person on the planet hope and it tells them that they will not stay that way. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were changed, you were sanctified. He doesn't say you were washed and sanctified and changed and you stay the same. That's not the way it works. He comes to us in our mess and he rescues us and he changes us. 
Such were some of you. This text, this text in Hebrews is giving a warning to those who are, not to those who were. There's a difference between having been an adulterer and being an adulterer. There's a difference in having been and being. And this warning is to those who are being. I am thankful. I am thankful that God saves sinners. I am thankful that the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not for folks who have their life all together. Because if it were just for folks who have their lives all together, there wouldn't be anybody. There wouldn't be anybody in the kingdom of God. There wouldn't be anybody in heaven. But rather, the message of the gospel is clear that we are all sinners. And because God is holy, he must punish sin, and we all deserve death and hell. The Bible's clear about that. The good news of the gospel is, even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love toward us that way. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we got it all together, after we cleaned up our act, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took our sin as if it was his own. He suffered the wrath that we deserve, and he died in our place. And that's not even the end of the story. He rose again in victory over sin and death and hell and gives us victory as a gift that we receive by faith. It's a gift that we don't deserve. It's a gift that we can never work for. It's a gift that we receive by trusting in him. I am thankful that the gospel is, works that way. I'm thankful for the gospel. So Ligon Duncan says, God is not saying that adultery and fornication is the unpardonable sin. That's very good news because there are very many of us who could not be pardoned if it were the unpardonable sin. That doesn't mean, this is the next thing Lig says, that doesn't mean that there is no forgiveness for the repentant. What it means for those who will not turn, for those who persist in that sin, there is certain and terrifying judgment. And for all there are consequences. Therefore, heed the warning. In other words, don't think, don't think that you can just keep living that life. And your profession of faith be credible. Maybe I would say it in an even stronger way. Don't think that you can just continue to live that way for your entire life and go to heaven when you die. That is absolutely inconsistent with someone who says their life has been changed. Absolutely inconsistent. So this warning is for you. If that's the road you're on, if that's the path you're on, turn. Turn. Repent. Turn away from that. The Bible says flee sexual immorality. Run away from it because your soul is at stake. It's not just your family. It's not just your marriage. It's your soul that's at stake. Look at Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 5 to 8. It says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving, the abominable and murderers and immoral persons, that word immoral is sexually immoral right there, sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I want you to recognize today that this is not something to toy around with. That sexual sin, the marriage bed defilement, 
is not something to toy around with. We're not talking here just about temporal consequences for your sins. This text is clearly talking about eternal consequences for your sins. Good news is Jesus rescues us. Good news is Jesus changes us. The reality is he really changes us, gives us new desires, new hearts, power to overcome. And so we must overcome. So Ephesians, I mean, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. By way of application, I want to say just a few things. Number one, we've talked about this already. Let's not make the application today only about them or him or her. We want to make this application today about us. This word is written to us. We could rail about same-sex marriage, but we might not talk as much about divorce. We probably would talk even less about unhealthy marriages and even less about the avoidance of marriage that is a problem in our culture. We could rail all day about the tragedy of adultery, and fornication, but we would probably talk less about pornography and general lustiness. There's more than one way to defile the marriage bed. There's more than one way to dishonor marriage. And I believe that there is some repenting that needs to take place here today. That's number one. Don't make this about them. This is a word written to believers. Number two, how exactly do we hold marriage in honor. If we are called to hold marriage in honor, if actually everyone is called to hold marriage in honor, but especially us, how can we hold marriage in honor? I think there are a few ways. Number one, we can celebrate at weddings. If you get invited to the wedding of a Christian couple, go. Go and celebrate and encourage them in this union. It is a joyous day and should be celebrated. If you get invited, make every effort to attend a Christian wedding. Number two, Let's celebrate anniversaries, like big time celebrate anniversaries. Pepper Sacks just had a big one a couple weeks ago, right? 50 years, 50 years. They got married when they were 12. <laughs> Almost, right? 50 years they've celebrated uh, being together in holy matrimony. So here's what I want to do. And some of you are going to think, oh, I shouldn't do this. It's going to make single people feel bad. This is going to make divorced people feel bad. That's not what this is about. This is about celebrating with those who are celebrating, right? And this text is about marriage. It's not about singleness. This text is about marriage. It's not about divorce. We'll talk about singleness when the text is about singleness. And we'll talk about divorce when the text is about divorce. But this text tells us to honor marriage. So let's do it. If you've been married 40 years or more, stand up. That's pretty great. If you've been married 50 years or more, stay standing. That means everybody else sit down. If you haven't been married 50 years, sit down. 50 years, look at all these folks. Anybody got 60? 60? You guys are 60? Who's the most? How many? Ooh, Mr. Joe, how many? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly 60 all right what about you 
63. Man, fantastic. We want, to, we want to celebrate those kind of marriages. I hope that you young people were able to look around and say, I want to I know that secret. I remember in Mississippi, when I first moved down there, I went to a hospital visit, and there was this old lady, and she was dying. I mean, she was, she was on her deathbed for sure. And her husband was, was sitting there beside her, and I was talking to him, and I said, hey, how many years have you guys been married? And he said, 61. And I said, man, 61 years, that's a long time. And I will never forget this. He looked me straight in the eye and he said, not long enough. Woof. I want to say that. At 61 years, Lord, give us a few more. This is not long enough. We need to celebrate those kind of marriages. We had another couple in our church in Mississippi. Um, when we moved there, they were fairly old, and she had clearly had a stroke at some point, and uh, she couldn't do much of anything for herself. Um, but every time we saw her, she had makeup done, her hair was just right, she was dressed just right, and he had done all of that for her. She couldn't even talk to him. She couldn't feed herself. She, could, she couldn't do anything for him. And he took care of her, not just enough to get by, but that she was looking great every time we saw her. And my assumption was that they were about 80 years old and that maybe she had had this stroke when, they, when she was like 75 or something like that. Turns out she had had it when she was like 55. And that blew my mind. So for all of these years, not just for the last five years, but for the last like 30 years, he had been taking care of her like that. That kind of marriage should be celebrated. That kind of sacrificial marriage should be celebrated. And we want to rejoice over those. And that's what this text is about today. How do we hold marriage in honor? We celebrate weddings. We celebrate anniversaries. Number three, we focus on building good marriages. How do we honor marriage? We try to build good marriages. I was talking to a couple the other day who were going through a really difficult time. Really difficult time in their marriage. And I said, tell me when it's been best. When has your marriage been at its best? And they agreed that it was when they were trying. <laughs> That's a major breakthrough, right? They agreed that when they were trying actively, intentionally to work on their marriage, then their marriage was better. That sounds very simple, but we often neglect that. Ray Brown said it like this. Young people and old alike need to remember that a good marriage doesn't just happen. In the rush and tear of modern life, when people have to cope with financial difficulties and anxiety over employment, it is all too easy for overworked and preoccupied husbands or wives to take their partners for granted. So if we are going to be a church that honors marriage, we are going to have to be a church that works actively to produce healthy marriages. So tonight at 7 o'clock, Brad and Holly are going to teach through, start teaching through a book called This Momentary Marriage. That would be a great way to actively, intentionally improve your marriage. And I am, I'm a believer that when you're working on it, it'll be better. When you just sit back and coast, it will not go a good direction. So let's actively pursue healthy marriages. How do we honor marriage? Those were all the positive things. Here's the negative thing. Stop cracking stupid jokes about marriage. Stop talking about marriage as if it's a burden and a drag on your whole life. Stop telling young men who are about to get married that they've got three more weeks to get out of it. That, that stuff makes, I'm not a violent guy. 
But when I hear that kind of stuff, it makes me angry. It makes me want to punch somebody. Is your marriage really so bad that you would say to a young man who's about to get married, don't do it. Run while you can. Christians should not talk that way. Rather, we should say, this is the greatest adventure of your life, and it's going to be hard, but it's going to be wonderful. And you are doing it a good thing. Don't say to young Christian people who have thought it through and have a plan, who want to get married, you're too young. You're too young. I'm always amazed at older people who say that. Older people who got married when they were 18 look at somebody who's 22 and say, you're too young to get married. How do we hold marriage in honor? On the positive side, we celebrate, we celebrate, we focus, and we stop cracking those kind of jokes. Number two, how do we secure the marriage bed? How do we make sure the marriage bed is undefiled? Well, in the positive, I've heard people say, oh, the grass was greener on the other side of the fence. You've heard people use that kind of language. On the positive side, keep the grass green on your own side of the fence. If you want to protect the marriage bed, Work on the marriage bed. Make sure there is deep satisfaction. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, make sure that relationship is healthy at home and then all of those things that are tempting you on the other side of the fence will have less power in your life. That's the way it works. This is good application, guys. Like, sometimes I say, you you got homework. (laughs) This is good homework. Water the grass at your house. And on the negative side, pull some weeds. Pull some weeds. Some of you have some stuff going on in your homes, in your lives, behind closed doors, in the dark, that is bad. And you need to get rid of it. You need to tend the garden a bit and pull some weeds and get rid of some things. That may be, for some of you, a radical move. A radical move of the ending of a friendship or a job. You may need to get rid of your phone. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. Because it's better to go to heaven with one arm than to hell with two. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away from you. Because it's better to go to heaven with one eye than to hell with two. This is what this text in Hebrews is teaching us. How do we secure the marriage bed? On the positive side, we keep the grass green. And on the negative side, we pull the weeds. And then the last thing I want to say is this matters because of the gospel. Because if husbands and wives are pictures of Christ in the church, what does it say when we are unfaithful to each other? What does this matter? It matters because of the family. Because Satan has the family in his sights. Because he knows that if he can destroy the family, he can destroy the society. If he can destroy the family, he can destroy the church. If he can destroy the family, he can destroy the city. And he's got a pretty good foothold around here. What does this matter? It matters because of the church. Nothing brings a halt to the momentum of a church like sexual scandal. And it matters because of the witness, our public witness. They are watching. I told you that the text today was not about them. But hear me clearly, they are watching us. And if what they see in us is exactly the same as what they see in the rest of their friends, there's no way they're going to listen to the message we speak to them. 
But if our lives are different, if we honor marriage, if we keep our marriage beds undefiled, they might listen. At least our message will be credible at that point. So listen, if you're walking down that road, repent. There's grace. There's such worse some of you, but you were changed. Maybe today is the day for that change. Maybe the day is you say is the day you say the old is gone, the new has come by God's grace. Thankful for that grace of His that changes us. Maybe you need to work on your own marriage. Maybe you need to come alongside someone else who's struggling and help them work on theirs. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us the truth about marriage. And we pray that you will help us to honor marriage, to secure the marriage bed, and to live with holy and reverent fear of you, to consider our souls as we engage temptation, fight temptation. Help us to consider our souls. We are thankful today for your grace grace that reaches down to sinners, rescues them, forgives them, cleanses them, and changes them. And God, we know that that change doesn't happen completely overnight, but we know that that change is necessary. It's part of your design. I pray that your spirit will Help us wrestle with this today and that you'll give us submission to your word and a proper response in Christ's name.